everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hey everyone, it's Brandon. Welcome back. Uh, we have a lightning rounds for you today, but it's going to be extra lightning. Um, I was going to call it whatever is faster than lightning, but then I... Uh, I couldn't think of anything faster than lightning. So suffice to say, it's going to be even shorter than usual. And uh, the reason is because Brian's not here. Brian is otherwise engaged. So you just have me today. And what I thought I would do is rattle through five things that people don't really understand. Things that people, frankly, are often wrong about. And you could call these myths, but that may be a little too lofty. I think myths are things that people think about and consider and address and then just the perspective they take is 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 erroneous these i think are often things people just do without thinking they're um uh, they were learned implicitly or um with very little attention they haven't people haven't really given attention to the evidence or the physiology it's just kind of things that they they assume are true uh, and yet they are not now this is not going to be focused on evidence um, frankly, we don't really have time for it. Um, there is evidence for some of these points, some not so much so, but please feel free to reach out if you are looking for uh, references or really just m- more than what I'm giving you right now. Okay, point number one. Are diuretic infusions with loop diuretics like furosemide better than intermittent boluses of diuretics? So you have a patient and you're giving uh, intermittent pushes of furosemide, and you give them fair amounts, and you're not getting the diuresis you want to see, so you switch them to a drip as a, as a, a next line, as a rescue. Is that better? No. This actually is well studied, and essentially you should not expect any better diuresis from a drip. If you're getting better diuresis, meaning you're getting more urine out over a period of time, like 24 hours, it's just because you were giving more with a drip, and you could have done that with the pushes. Now, there may be practical reasons why a drip is better. For instance, if you're a patient with very uh, unstable hemodynamics, and you think that slamming them with a huge push of Lasix, as we say in the U.S., um, may give you a big release of urine, and that may drop your intravascular volume, and that may make them perhaps hypotensive. Maybe a drip is a good answer for that, because you'll get a steadier, more titratable, smoother curve of diuresis. And that may be practically useful for you. It also may be useful if, for instance, you can't really rely because of staffing reasons or whatever on someone to follow the patient's urine output around the clock, watch them respond to your push, watch the urine output taper down, and then re-dose uh, them. If that's not going to happen, then maybe just putting them on a drip around the clock and letting them steadily, reliably diaries is a good idea. But it's not better. Number two. Antipsychotics or neuroleptic agents used for the treatment of delirium. Drugs like haloperidol, ketiapine, uh, olanzapine, you give these to patients with ICU delirium because it treats their delirium, right? No. The only reason you would ever give a drug like this for a patient with delirium in the ICU is because they are sedatives. These drugs have a sedating effect. 
and that may be necessary. Now, why would you sedate a patient with delirium? Well, if they're being unsafe, if they're agitated, if they're falling out of bed, pulling out lines and tubes, um, being dangerous to staff, of course, you may have to sedate those patients. You could use other agents, uh, but something like intermittent haloperidol IV is a reasonable choice, mainly because it is probably as harmful as other sedatives, but not more harmful. And something like benzodiazepines seem like they are more harmful. They are more deliriogenic than other agents, whereas something like haloperidol is only as deliriogenic as other agents. So there's no additional specific uh, harm to this drug. And if you're trying to go with an intermittent bolus, which is a good idea if you can get away with it compared to a drip, you don't really have any other choices. You have antipsychotics or you have benzos. However, please do not think that you are treating the patient's delirium. These drugs do not shorten the duration of delirium. They do not prevent delirium if started before the delirium sets on. All they do is sedate the patient. They do not reorder your thoughts. They do not help the patient be less confused or hallucinate less or whatever. The only reason you would think that is by conflating it with their use in thought disorders like schizophrenia, where, of course, it does have a disease-modifying effect, but that doesn't work in delirium. And again, that has been studied. Number three, volume control versus pressure control ventilation in modes like assist control. Is one better? Basically, no. If you have the thought process that you tend to use one, let's say volume control, and then you switch to something like pressure control for a patient who is sicker or more difficult to oxygenate or whatever, I think you're confused about how they work. Now, there may be practical reasons to favor one, but from a starting point, all you're doing is picking which variable you want to set. In volume control, the independent variable is volume, and when you deliver that volume to the patient's lungs, uh, the pressure that results uh, based on the patient's compliance uh, will be whatever. If they're very compliant, the pressure will be lower. If they're not compliant and they have very tight lungs, then it'll be higher. In pressure control, you set the pressure. That's the independent variable. And once you meet that pressure in the lungs, you've given a certain amount of volume, which again will depend on the compliance. In either case, if you care about both, which you do, you care about the volume because it pertains to their ventilation and their CO2, but you can care about this uh, volume and the pressure because they both pertain to the lung protectiveness of your ventilation. If you care about both, you have to set one and check the other. So, What's the difference? Well, there are potentially practical differences. And the most important one is that in many cases, pressure control could be more comfortable in a patient with a lot of their own effort. If they have a lot of flow demand, pressure control usually does a better job meeting that because the, the flow rate is, is variable in pressure control. Um, and it's rare to have flow dyssynchronies. Whereas in volume control, you just set the flow and it can be hard to match the patient's flow. So that can be true. Otherwise, it gets down to nittier, grittier things. If you're into doing inverse ratios, um, pressure control may be more convenient because you set the instrument time directly or the IDE ratio, same thing. Whereas in volume control, it's, it's sort of a secondary thing. It's easier to stretch out the, the times in pressure control. Whereas in volume control, you can do it. You can set instrument pauses, but it's a little unusual for most people. Um, but those are the main things. So really, if you prefer one or the other, that's fine. Most of this tends to be institutional. Individual ICUs will tend to favor pressure or volume control or hybrid modes like PRVC, whatever you want to call it. Um, 
And in that case, you should probably use what people tend to use in your shop. Otherwise, you'll just confuse people and give them headaches. People are used to setting pressure or volume, but not the other one. But again, please don't think that one is superior. That has really never been shown in any study, in any general sense, for mortality or lung protectiveness or anything else. It was maybe the one exception being that in the original ArgeNet trial, the ARMA study, they used volume control. So if you're being very strict about your evidence-based medicine, you might say you should use that because that's what they used. I think that's a bit much. Um, you can extrapolate the principles from a study without absolutely cloning their protocol. Number four, troponin elevations in patients with renal failure, or at least kidney disease. Many times you will see patients with severe renal failure, maybe they're on dialysis, maybe they're close to it, and when you check their troponin level, it is elevated, and maybe it is always elevated, maybe it does not clear. And then someone will say, well, this is because of their renal failure, they're not clearing their troponin, nothing to do with their heart, it's a problem of elimination. This is just not true. Troponin is not cleared renally. Troponin is cleared through the reticular endothelial system, the liver and the spleen and so on. So a patient who has renal failure is not accumulating troponin because they're not getting rid of it. They're accumulating troponin for the same reason that anybody accumulates troponin, because they have myocardial ischemia. Now, a patient who walks around with a chronically elevated troponin, that's not a good thing. In fact, those patients actually have a worse prognosis. The reason they have it is because a lot of patients with kidney failure have involvement of their heart, whether for unrelated reasons or for a kind of cardiorenal picture and, you know, related comorbidities. Now, it doesn't mean you can do anything about that, uh, but you should be aware of it, and you shouldn't try to chalk it up to elimination because that's just a, an error of pharmacokinetics. Number five, a patient who you're performing close, frequent neurologic exams on because of some neurologic insult, grasps at your hand when you put your fingers in it. Maybe you tell them to squeeze your hand, which is a very common command we'll use to assess the ability to follow commands. This suggests they heard your command and they obeyed it. Maybe, maybe not. This is not a very good command. It's a, a decent screen because it's very simple, yeah, but it's not a very specific test of neurologic function because patients with very little CNS function can still grasp as a pure spinal reflex. If you put something in someone's hand, especially if you kind of tug at it and give them a stretch, many people will grasp uh, without any volitional urge to. And in fact, patients who are brain dead or close to it um, may still have a, a grasp reflex like that. Even babies do that. So if someone does grasp at you when you tell them to, follow it up with something else. Make them do something that is less triggered and reflexive and more potentially complex. Have them open their hand. Have them do something with their eyes or their mouth. Have them show you two fingers or a thumb or something like that. Uh, but don't leave it at that. Reflex grasping can be like triple flexing your legs in response to pain. Um, it can leave out the brain entirely. All right, guys, that's all I have for you. Five things. Please tell me if you disagree with any of this. I don't know if some of this will be controversial. And again, please tell me if you need any support for any of these assertions, and I'll tell you what I have. Hit me up on Twitter or email or comment in the show notes. Otherwise, we'll see you in two weeks. Back with Brian.